Uh, our first speaker then uh, is uh, Sarah Moss, who is a writer. Uh, she's a novelist and a travel writer. She's written six novels and twice been shortlisted for the Welcome Prize. Sarah Moss. Morning. Tell me about the bog people. The bog people were sacrifices made by Iron Age communities in Northern Europe. And we don't really know how they were chosen. Some of them would have moved or looked unusual. But some of them seem to have been quite ordinary people. I was going to say all ages, but it's interesting that there are no children or, <coughs> children or babies, often strong young people sometimes quite high status, and they were ritually killed and then thrown into bogs. And why bogs, particularly? We don't really know, um, but bogs are liminal spaces. They're not quite land, they're not quite water. Sometimes they look like water, sometimes they look like land. But they're preservative. Um, they tan things, it's a kind of leathering process. So one of the scholars of this kind of archaeology suggested that the bog people would go on looking human, that you could go visit them for months and years, and some of the bog bodies might have been taken out and put back over the centuries. So it's a way of arresting time. And you saw one when you were young. <laughs> yes, I did. I managed to repress it. Um, Lindo Mann was found near Manchester where I was growing up, and I was, I think, nine. I keep moving the date around, but, you know, let's go for nine. And for some reason, we had a school trip to go see Lindo Mann in the Manchester Museum. If I were in charge of a group of nine-year-old girls, I would not take them to see a bog body, but, you know, that was then. And I thought I'd forgotten all about it until I was talking to a friend in Northumberland, Andy Bates, he's a leather worker. And he mentioned bog bodies, and I thought I'd never heard of them. But as I read more, and particularly when I saw the photo of Lindo Mann, I remembered this visit as a nine-year-old and the ensuing nightmares, which went for years. The thing, when you say, Sarah, that they were sacrifices, mm. I've heard you use this word, <clears throat> pharmacos, yeah. which arrested me for obvious reasons, its resonances with, with medicine. But that word and its connection with those sacrifices, mm. what, tell me a bit about that. What does that word mean and what's its connection? To use the word for the Iron Age is, is unhistoric. I mean, that's me as a novelist mm. messing around with the record. Um, pharmakos were, in, in ancient Greece, um, people who seemed to have been hunted out of communities at times of stress. So scapegoats, really, the ones who carry the blame. If you can get rid of them, then your problem will go away. So a way of attributing the ills or the yes. challenges of a society yes. or state to, to one individual, yes. and in sacrificing them, therefore, what, propitiating? Something. The interesting thing about the bog people is that they're not gone. I mean, with the ancient Greek idea of pharmakos, you expel the evil thing and it's gone, and then you're going to have to find another pharmakos, of course, because you know, there is a constant supply of evil. Um, with the bog people, they're still sort of there, and it's that liminal kind of there, not there thing that, that fascinates me. But also, I think, is what you need in a scapegoat, because if your scapegoat goes, you've just created a vacancy. And if, in, in creating that vacancy, we may find out. somehow have to kind of own it yourself. Yes. I mean, in this um, book you've written, Ghost Wall, 
you're exploring this idea of, of the scapegoat mm. and, the, and the often violent deaths attached to the bog people. Yes. And at heart exploring, to me, I think, uh, self-evidently, the whole business of violence to others, but in a family space here. In both a family and a national mm. space and, and thinking about the relationships between family violence and national violence. So what is it about violence? Why, why are you drawn to think? You've thought about violence before? Yes. Yes. Most explicitly to me here. Yes. I don't think I've thought... Well, I've thought about physical violence before. I don't think I've written about it much. For a novelist, the physical violence is just theatre. I mean, you're not, you know, you're not actually hurting anybody. So it's not the physical manifestation of violence that's really important. It's the narratives and the emotional drives that underlie that violence. But, of course, it, I mean, as with everything else in life, it often finds physical expression... So there is some physical violence in this book, but I'm more interested in the manipulation of symbols and stories around physical violence. You know, what, what stories do, I tell, do we tell ourselves that allow us to be violent? What stories do we tell when we're the victims of violence that make it tolerable? Could you start, perhaps, just by... Could you read us that bit at the start mm. where... The, the actual historic bit of it? Yeah, yeah prehistoric. I don't usually read this because it's disturbing, but I thought, since we're doing things yeah. intensively here, I'm yeah. just going to disturb you. Sorry. <laughs> they bring her out, not blindfolded, but eyes widened to the last sky, the last light. The last cold bites her fingers and her face. The stones, not the last stones, bruise her bare feet. She stumbles. They hold her up. No need to be rough. Everyone knows what is coming. From deep inside her body, from the cord in her spine and the wide bloodways under the ribs, from the emptiness of her womb and the rising of her chest, she shakes, a body in fear. They lead the fearful body over the turf and along the track, her bare feet numb to most of the pain of rock and sharp rushes. Chanting rises. The drums sound slow, unsyncopated with the last panic of her heart. Others follow, wrapped against the cold, dark figures processing into the dusk. On arrival, they strip her. It is easy. They have put her into a loose tunic. Her body is white in the pale red light, solid against the wisps of fog and the tracery of reed. She tries to cover herself with her hands and is not allowed. One holds her while the other binds her. Her breathing is accelerating, its condensation settling on her face. All of them are accompanied by their exhalations, slowly dissolving into the air. They turn her to face the crowd. They display her to her neighbours and her family, to the people who held her hands as she learnt to walk, taught her to dip her bread in the pot and wipe her lips, to weave a basket and gut a fish. She has played with the children who now peep at her from behind their mothers has murmured prayers for them as they were being born. She has been one of them, ordinary. Her brother and sisters watch her flinch as the men take the blade, lift the pale hair on the left side of her head and cut it away. They scrape the skin bare. She doesn't look like one of them now. She shakes. They tuck the hair into the rope around her wrists. She is whimpering, keening. The sound echoes across the marsh sings through the bare branches of rowan and birch. There are no surprises. 
They place another rope around her neck, hold the knife up to the setting sun as it edges behind the rocks. What is necessary is on hand, the sharpened willow withies, the pile of stones, the small blades and the large, the stick for twisting the rope. Not yet. There is an art to holding her in the place she is entering now, on the edge of the water earth, in the time and space between life and death. Too late to return to the living, and not time, not yet, not for a while, to be quite dead. Thank you. And then the narrative <clears throat> shifts from there to the modern day, or just, to, just mm. before the modern day, around a group of individuals in the same space, geographic space, yeah. most particularly, and so they're, they're reenacting or uh, Iron Age living. Yes. Yeah? And most particularly at the centre of those individuals, there's a family, a mother, a father, Father Bill, daughter Sylvie, mm. and the relationship between Bill and Sylvie. Yes. Which is a really charged and violent relationship. So say a bit about those two. It's occasionally violent. It's underwritten by love that's gone wrong. Um, it was important to me that Bill shouldn't just be a monster because calling people monsters is a kind of scapegoating. It's a way of pretending that those monstrous qualities are not found in anybody else or are not produced by an environment or permitted by an environment. So he's an abusive man, but he's an abusive man I'm trying to get the reader to understand, not to forgive, but to understand because there is a time and a place that has produced that kind of behaviour as well as a person who has produced that kind of behaviour. And he's... Well, it's set in the early 1990s. They're a family from approximately Burnley. I mean, I'm not specific about it. But I was thinking about the communities I knew growing up in the northwest in the 80s and 90s. And they had reason to be really angry. You know, there was a lot to be angry about. And I think looking at it now, I can see that maybe there was particularly a lot for the men to be angry about. They'd been raised to a set of expectations that there was no space for them to fulfil in their adult lives. And that's part of the story of violence. It's not all of the story of violence, but it's part of it. It's interesting what you say about the difference between understanding and forgiveness. Mm -hmm. And trying to... And you t you've talked about wanting to inhabit both the... Um, to keep your gaze as a writer and thinker with that of the victim. Yeah but also to understand the stories of the perpetrators yes. and, and what incites someone to that position. I remember, we talked about this, in fact, a few years ago at a Medicine Unboxed event, we were talking with, uh, in fact, Lionel Shriver, the writer, about mid-staffs, mm. and she wondered about the whole um, mid-staffs scandal and asked the question front of the audience, well, what would, it, what, what would it have felt like to be those yeah. nurses and doctors to get to a position of behaving in that way? And she was, um, you know, she was, she was chastised fairly loudly from a number of people in the audience were saying, well, this is you can't condone this behaviour. And you, in fact, even on, in writing about wanting to keep your gaze with the perpetrator, has got a lot of challenging yes. responses from your Guardian piece. Yes, I, I wrote a piece for the Guardian about writing violence against women um, and... <coughs> said that here I was trying very hard not, not to open up a space between the pain and the perpetrator, that I didn't want there to be space for the reader to be voyeuristic or titillated in any way. 
but that also if we don't try to understand why people are violent, we really have no tools for stopping it. I mean, you just end up expelling people repeatedly. It's the scapegoat manoeuvre, and it doesn't work because there's a constant supply of violence. So I understand why Lionel Shriver would have said that, and I've thought... It's interesting, I thought the same thing when writing about Victorian mad women in Signs for Lost Children, that to understand self-destructive behaviour you have to think, what would it have to be like in my head for me to do that, rather than just saying, this is bizarre and weird and I can't imagine how anyone could do that. Well, you can actually try. Think about what it would be like for you to want to behave in those ways. And I think the same is probably true of <coughs> violence. What would make you do that? What would it be like to do that? And you don't then have to think, oh, well, that's fine, that's why anybody would have done it, it doesn't matter, there are no consequences. But if you want to stop it happening again... You, you can't just throw them all into the box. And it's part of that recognising, so in writing it, in, in, do you find yourself as a person recognising the impulse oh, yes. in yourself? Yes, of course. I mean, I don't do it, but... Don't, I mean, don't we all have violent impulses sometimes? You, you don't follow through, but... Is it uncomfortable recognising the impulse? No, I think actually it reinforces my sense of the need to control the impulse. I mean, I don't think it's particularly problematic if you occasionally want to kill somebody, but it's certainly very problematic if you act on it. What do you think Bill's about? What do you think brings him to... Because, in fact, you, I mean, <clears throat> the interesting thing is there is both violence and... Ten, you know, I found myself feeling sympathy for Bill. Good. He just tortured... Bloke, and he, but in fact, even Syl Sylvie yeah. loves him. Yes, she does. Um, and there's moments of real pride when she talks about him, and similarly, vice versa, in tenderness. Yes. But then this, particularly the scene when um, he finds her in the woods, mm. and um, is is you know it's, it's harrowing what follows, and how it's possible for for love to sit so closely. Mm. to enacted violence. Yes. To be so ambivalent. Love can be a violent emotion, and it, it does sit closely with rage and hate and violence. I mean, they're, they're all kind of strong, visceral instincts. And that's part of the responsibility of being human, isn't it? To, to find those strange shifting limits and control the way we behave. Are you saying something about Bill? In Bill, though, and his... What do you think draws him to being that person? What brings him to it? I think he's been given permission, and he's given himself permission. By... He's been given permission by... Masculinity, hmm. really. Uh, patriarchy. Um, yeah. And a narrative about class that expects that working-class men might behave like that. And do you think it is just a position of... I mean, it's interesting that one of our a colleague of mine who's a um, um, healthcare visitor in, Chel in Gloucestershire, mm. but notes, in fact, behind the kind of veneered um, closed doors of, 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 of wealthy Cheltenham, the amount of mm. domestic abuse eventuating in violence yeah. surpassed any of her expectations. Yes. So class, perhaps, or perhaps class given as a class within the context of this whole business of masculinity. 
Class is another narrative, I mean, as well as being a, a fundamental form of injustice, but in, in personal terms, it's often a narrative, and I'm not at all surprised, I mean, it wouldn't surprise any of us that it's a narrative that's not true. It's a way of excusing some things and justifying others. But and masculinity is not a way of excusing it, is it? It's actually a... It's an expectation. Yeah, so yes. what about it? What, what's the expectation? Can we interrogate that a bit? Lots been said about it in the last couple of years, particularly... What is it about masculinity that gives that, or maleness, mm. that permits that behaviour, or indeed expects it? Sometimes, yeah. I think it's, I think it's masculinity. I think it's social, not biological. Oh, I've just opened a huge can of worms. Um, <laughs> as a writer and a scholar of literature with no grounding in any kind of biological science, um, <laughs> I think that gender is social, not biological, and moving very swiftly on. Um, <laughs> It's about control and authority, and most control, maybe all control, is fundamentally underwritten by the threat of violence. I mean, whether that's about the state or about parents or anybody else, if you're really in authority, if you're really in control, somewhere under there, there's some violence. And I think that's part of what's going on with those kinds of ideas of masculinity. You've made the, you've made the comment quite openly, that that isn't necessarily located just between individuals, but generalises across families. So whether it's actually owned by a male being or not, the tendency to behave in that way. What about your comment about nation states then? Just what what are we talking about there? I'm thinking a lot, I mean, partly the title of this book, Ghost War, kind of signals one of my main concerns here, which is about borders and boundaries. It's set, and I researched it, in the shadow of Hadrian's Wall. And it's set in the early 90s when the walls were coming down. I was thinking about the fall of the Berlin Wall, which happened when I was about Sylvie's age. And the walls we have now going up. And thinking about boundaries and edges, who is civilised and who is barbaric. I mean, that kind of wall building is another form of scapegoating the people on the other side of the baddies and we are the goodies. And particularly in the context of Hadrian's Wall and narratives about Englishness and about British history, that's very interesting. I mean, are the Romans the civilising force that institutes British history? Because they are. I mean, it's with the arrival of the Romans that, that Britain steps into history. Or are they the foreign colonialists coming in and you know, pushing the true native Brits out to the edges? And you can tell it either way, and it, it makes no more sense one way than the other. But it is told both ways at moments of historical convenience. And Bill's consumed by the idea of some pure British yes. state. Yes. Which can, which can be located in time. Yeah, absolutely. That was almost an intellectual game. I read somewhere some report of some far-right group who'd said that, um, yes, all the immigrants would have to leave, and that would be a great thing, and it would take us back to 1,700 years ago, which they'd chosen as the moment of racial purity in, in Britain. Um, I, don't know, it, it, I suppose it works because there's almost no history for 1,700 years ago, so you can pretty much put what you like in there as long as you're not bothered by little details like archaeology. Um, but I thought, okay, how far back do we have to go? To, you know, if, if you're looking for a kind of 
original Britishness. How far back do we go? Clearly the Windrush doesn't do it. Clearly the big migrations of the early 20th century don't do it. Clearly the, you know, the, the results of empire don't do it. Fine, I'll just keep going, you know, 1066 and cruising on by. Where, where do you start? And of course you don't, because if you do that, you end up in Africa, which is where we all came from. <laughs> um, but that's not the answer they want. So at some point you have to kind of interject a fiction that, that you know, these British people just came up like mushrooms in the night and have been here forever. And that intersection between the Iron Age and the Romans is... is so, it, I mean, it's not really the moment, because most of the Iron Age people in Britain had come from what's now France and Ireland, but it'll do. You know, as, as a moment for an argument about history and prehistory and origins, it's quite a good one. And, the <clears throat> Bill, and this notion of pharmacos and what Bill's doing to Sylvie, in, in a sense, occupies a wider narrative in what we do to, yes. for instance, migrants, refugees. Yeah. If, as, long as, as long as we can say they are the cause of the problem, yes. then we feel all right. Yes. And then we don't look at the structural problems. And the strength of that um, inclination is quite forceful, isn't it? Yes, because it's easy. It's much easier to say these people or that person embodies all badness and if we can get rid of them, the problem will be solved than it is to look at how the problem was produced in the first place. Modern-day bog people. Yeah. Do you think, when you, you've written a lot about history mm. and your um, narratives inhabit two sets of time very often, yeah. you know, transparency-like, yes. laid upon one another, um, when you, as a, someone who's interested in history and indeed the present moment, does it feel as if we've moved on? No, it's interesting. I've been asked several times about this book. Oh, you know, do you... Are you thinking about a time when we were brutal, when we used to do these things to people? And I think if you looked at the kinds of weapons we're selling and who we're selling them to, have, have you turned on the news recently and seen the photos of the bodies? Of course we're no more civilised. I mean, we may not anymore gather on a local hillside and watch it. We may not do it with our own hands, but it's still being done in our name all over the world and much worse. In, therefore, thinking about someone like Bill and wanting to think about impulses and the stories around why people behave as they do. Do you think as a writer that, it's a loaded question, but do you think as a writer that literature, I don't know, art, in, in, true, in well representing mm. those stories can bring us to understanding? Does it afford that possibility or is that romanticised? Probably both. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't think the poets are the unacknowledged legislators. I think that's the secret police. Um, but I do think that writing can change how we see... Or reading. Reading can change how we see things. Otherwise, there's not much point. Mm. Can we have another reading? Mm-hmm. This is a slightly more cheerful bit. Um, this, is, this is Sylvie. Darkness was a long time coming. The fire crackled, transparent against the trees, its purpose no more, no less than ceremonial. We had been pushed away from each other by the heat that no one wanted. Wood smoke stung my eyes, and the rock dug into my backside, the rough tunic itchy under my thighs. 
I slipped my foot out of its moccasin and pointed my toes towards the fire for no reason, to see how it felt. You can't be cold, my father said, though it was he who had lit the fire and insisted that we gather around it. I can, I thought, if I've a mind, but I said, no, Dad, I'm not cold. Through the flames, I could see the boys talking to each other and drawn back almost into the trees, as if they were thinking of melting into the woods and creeping off somewhere to do some boys' thing at which I would probably be more skilled. My mother sat on the stone where my father had told her to sit, tunic rucked unbecomingly above her fat white knees, staring into the flames as people do. It was boring, and my father was holding us all there, bored by force of will. Where do you think you're going, he said as I stood up. I need, I said, to pee, and he grunted and glanced towards the boys, as if the very mention of biological functions might incite their adolescent passions. Just make sure you go out of sight, he said. Within a few days, our feet would wear a path through the trees to the stream. But that first night, there was moss underfoot, squashy in the dim light, and patches of wild strawberries so ripe and red they were still visible in the dusk, as if glowing. I squatted to gather a handful and wandered on, picking them out of my palm with my lips, kissing my own hand. Bats flashed through the space between branches, mapping depth into the flat sky. I could still hear them then. It was odd to walk in the thin leather shoes, only a layer of borrowed, stolen skin between my feet and the sticks and stones, the damp patches and soft places of the woods. I came to the stream and squatted beside it, dipped my fingers, listened. Water over rock and peat, leaves stirring behind me and over my head, a sheep calling on the hill. Fresh dew came through my shoes. The stream tugged at my fingertips and the heather explored my legs, bare under the tunic. It was not that I didn't understand why my father loved these places, this outdoor life. It was not that I thought houses were better. She's a great character. Because you just... You can feel what comes across. She's she's got ferocity and intelligence, but no point during the book is she actually seems to be. Does she she just accepts his violence almost rather yes. than questioning it? Yes, because it's normal for mm. her, and she. I mean, she can't be questioning it all the time because she'd mm. never do anything else. Oh. She's just accepted that for now this is a condition of her life. I wanted to go on believing that men were also people that there are not two kinds of people. Yes. She needs... Well, I mean, partly that's true. Um, but she's resisting some of the narratives that the, the other... Mm. One of the students, Molly, is giving her, you know, all men are bastards and mm. up with the women. And she's very keen that that, that can't be allowed to be true, mm. that everybody is human and everybody is interesting. And do you think in, in, do you think in trying to understand... One can draw a straight line between those small domestic violences mm. and larger ones? No, I think I'm always suspicious of straight lines. Um, but there's a connection, without doubt, and it's to do with narrative and permission and the stories that give particular people permission to behave in particular ways. I'm afraid that's all we have time for. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sarah, very much. <laughs>